The Big Picture, a Christian insight into the world of movies, television and pop culture with magazine editor Ben McKechn and scriptwriter Mark Hadley. A Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. How the heck are you? I'm Ben McKechn. And I'm his well-enunciated friend, Mark Hadley. Welcome to episode 121 of The Big Picture for the week beginning August 21. And coming up on today's show, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Well, not theatregoers, that's for sure. Plus, Stephen Soderbergh's Logan Lucky and Stephen King's Dark Tower. We've actually got all the Stevens this all, week, Mark. All the Steve, but all none of the Sams. None of the Sams. Sam Robinson is not joining us again this week. He was away last week, away this week. We're looking forward to having his company again next week, Mark. So we'll do try to do our best to impersonate, I mean fill in for Sam. Let me help you. What is happening this week in film? Thank you for asking, Sam. I mean, Mark. <laughs> What's happening in films this week is this real curiosity called The Circle. I say curiosity even though it's a film that stars Harry Potter's Emma Watson and Tom Hanks. Let me repeat that. Tom Hanks. So there's two draw cards. There's two massive draw cards in this film called The Circle that's about some kind of Google-like company that's run by the character Tom Hanks is playing. And he wants everyone to be accountable all the time in this kind of big brother, well, almost like God-like way. And yet... Mark, barely anyone has talked about this film. It's really snuck into cinemas. I don't really know how it's going to go, but it, it opened last Thursday. You've already talked about it on the show. Check out Mark's review. Also, go online. You can find Mark's 60-second verdict on The Circle as well. It's doing the rounds online as we speak. <laughs> Indeed. And then coming up at cinemas this Thursday, Tom Cruise is a drug smuggler. Indeed. In the new movie, ah. American Made. Repeat, in a movie, Tom yep. Cruise is playing a drug smuggler. This is based on the true story of a pilot who brought drugs in from South America and then he turned into an informant. And it's from director Doug Lyman, who was most famous, I think, for The Born Identity. But he's also got another movie in cinemas called The Wall that Mark talked about on last week's show. So go to thebigpicturewebsite.com and check out Mark's review of The Wall. Let me tell you about what's going on in TV. This week on Netflix, the documentary release Feel Rich, Health is the New Wealth. Okay. <laughs> I can get rich by eating an apple. Well, Great. Uh, not exactly. Oh. If you're really, really wealthy, you don't feel the need to show it off in bling anymore. You actually buy your apples. Oh, okay. I see. Right. This, this program documents the nascent self-love revolution emerging in urban communities. So the nascent. I nascent. Thank you. It's me being... Erudite. More big words this week on the big picture. <laughs> Narrated by Quincy Jones the third, the film <laughs> cool. features interviews uh, with iconic artists, producers, urban farmers, of course, and meditators yep. who've made dramatic change in their lives by opening themselves up to new ideas about what it means to be rich. So <laughs> they open themselves up to new to, ideas. To new ideas. They're already rich. Yeah, and now they're going to be let's, rich in a new let's way. Let's think of some new ways to be rich. <laughs> so basically, you've got a bunch of hip hop elite like the Gang, Crystal Wall, Paul Wall. Fat Joe. These people mean nothing to me. You don't know what you're talking about, do you? The one the producer wrote those down for me. Okay. This program provides a unique insight into the global mind shift towards health and exercise as a new form of wealth. As being super rich. After you've been super rich, why not be healthy? I'm amazed that you're not on this show, Mark. Uh, the first reason. I don't, I've got the health, not the wealth. <laughs> okay. Well, also, you can look out for Marvel Universe this time around because make way on Prime, Amazon Prime, for The Tick. Oh, there's more Marvel. Oh, didn't you? Did, the Tick is a huge character. No, I know, I know, I know, but I just, I, <laughs> no I, I, I still actually marvel at how many Marvel characters there are and how many shows can be spun off from well, them. 
Amazon Here's Prime has dug up another one. Ah. <laughs> there we go. A new serial, and he is apparently blue. The plot is simple enough. An accountant with no superpowers comes to realise his city is owned by a supervillain. Okay. Egad. We've been there before. Um, <laughs> welcome to Gotham. And as he struggles <laughs> to uncover the conspiracy, he falls in league with a strange blue superhero known as the Tick. Well, it starts streaming this week. That's how desperate for superhero names are in that city. Like, what am I going to call myself? Uh, the Tick. <laughs> oh, no one's no, I'm sorry, so that's so catchy. Now, Mark, before we get to our what your kids are watching review for this week, and we're actually going to take a trip to the theatre for something different this week. Before we get there, you've got a true or false. Um, head, Indeed, pu- head puzzler for us. And, dude, I'm pointing towards the fact that we'll be talking about The Dark Tower as we do The Red Carpet. That's a massive, massive release this week, isn't it? And we're really looking forward to The Red Carpet. We'll be sharing that with you a little later in the show. We, uh, we've, gone to the, we've gone to The Red Carpet premiere and we're going to report back from it. And why not? And since we're reporting on one is, in fact, one of the greatest properties that author Stephen King has ever created. Oh, what's thought, that guy done? We thought we'd do <laughs> just a few little things like... Everything. <laughs> okay. Basically, um, Stephen King is an acclaimed writer and a wealthy one at that. In fact, he is wealthy now. But life for him and his wife wasn't always this way. So for our true or false this week, we thought we'd pose you this one. His first novel, Carrie, was written where? A, in their trailer park home at a makeshift desk in their laundry. Uh, B, at the janitor's desk during night shifts when he was meant to be cleaning floors. Or C, whilst moonlighting as a gas pump attendant at a small town service station. One wow. of those is true. I I actually hope that all of them are, which I know isn't kind of actually, well, maybe it could be possible. No, it couldn't have been at all. Stephen King, the down-to-earth author who has incredibly succeeded. Okay, we will find out which one of those statements is true after this. George was out somewhere there in the dark who is good to me, whom I revile, who can keep learning the games we play as quickly as I can change them, who can make me happy and I do not wish to be happy. Yes, I do wish to be happy. George and Martha. Sad, sad, sad. Okay, Mark, from talking about Stephen King, true or false, to something entirely different, uh, what the clip we just played then comes from the original 1966 version of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the original uh, movie version with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. And that, there was, that was a clear moment of truth in that film that we just played in that clip. Now, over the last couple of years, small independent cinemas have been finding a whole new range of films coming to screens that are setting them apart from the big multiplexes. They're showing the theatre at their theatres, as in the theatre at their (laughs) theatres. Many of your kids' HSC plays are playing at your local cinema thanks to an effort by international theatre companies, stage theatre companies, to expand their audience. So this week, we sent Mark off to investigate the trend and find out who exactly is afraid of Virginia Woolf. So, Mark, this is a trend, isn't it, where theatre companies film their performances and then they put them on the big screen... But does it actually translate well? Is, well, is this be- a good thing? Better than you think. 
Okay, for a start, you might be going, why am I going to what is ostensibly a live event and watching it in a recorded fashion? Yeah, why but am I doing that? Why are you doing that? Well, for a start, there are a few things you'll be used to and you'll be happy of. There are a multi-camera shoot oh, to begin phew. with. So you're going to see a few Good. different angles and Good. things we're not, like that. We're not going too far away from movies then. Uh, Thank and goodness. And indeed, um, there are all sorts of uh, interesting things that are done too. Like uh, in the screening I saw of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, they actually played a short film before the film of the play about the play. So basically <laughs> you found out a bit yeah. about the author and you found a bit about the actors and you found out a bit about the director and all that stuff and I actually found that fascinating I thought that would have been worth the price of admission that's awesome for HSC that. students as well like yeah. doing these like short crib notes on the on the on the play beforehand like just, just guys you can go right. to the pictures and claim it's study that's right <laughs> that's and learn you stuff do. you can but, learn stuff at the cinema and uh, not only that basically you see really big names okay so um, like Imelda Staunton played in the version of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf that I saw and we'll be talking about a little later um, you, you might remember her from Maleficent and Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, Paddington. Yeah, she's one of, of those um, really grand um, English authors like, um, you know, Hel- Helen Helen Mirren. Is yeah. it actor actor? She's and like Helen Mirren and uh, Dame, Judy, Dame Judy Dench and, um, and this, this Maggie is, Smith. And this is basically what's happening, that um, great names are being harvested. They're, they're doing performances elsewhere in the world and we get to actually see them. So Britain's National Theatre, but also Stage Russia, which is the best of the Russian theatre. The Royal Shakespeare Company... Um, they're all producing these sorts of recordings of their plays and now exporting them to smaller cinemas you'll find across Australia. Okay, but back to this very famous play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which also famously was made into that uh, film with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, but onto this now new filmed play version. Yep. Does a play first stage way back in 1962 have actually much to offer to kids now in 2017, though? Uh, indeed it does. And I want to say this for a start. When you see a play, actually, that has found its way to the screen in any form, what you often find is much better dialogue and much better thinking. Okay, because <laughs> the words, uh, they have to rely a lot in, in a theatre um, on just the performances and just the words they've got to say. No special effects, no, no death stuff looming in the background, okay? So um, in this case, you find with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, it's a fantastic story about literally who's afraid of truth. That if truth was actually spoken into people's lives, if our lives were uncovered, if we were dragged out of the light and everyone could see us as we were, um, wouldn't we really be afraid of that? Shouldn't we really be afraid of that? It's the importance of not building your life on a lie, and that's just as relevant today as it was in the 1960s when the play came out. But aren't we living in a world today, Mark, that seems to be in love with total exposure, you know, reality TV reigns, but also just the way people unveil seemingly everything about their life online at any possible moment. Isn't the 21st century, yeah. like, is it really afraid of the truth? I feel like we, we tell ourselves Aren't we, we are. past that? <laughs> Come on, I think, man. I think we tell ourselves that we're not really afraid of the truth, you know, and, and in fact, it's an excuse for us saying all sorts of things. Oh, you know, I'm just telling it like it is. But the truth is we are afraid of the truth. You know, the most offensive thing you can say in the world today, I reckon, is you're wrong. Okay, yeah, you, okay, I see what you're saying. I know, you're, saying I know you're not saying else, that to me. But. No, I know. You're, you're not wrong, Ben. <laughs> but, um, but you're right in, in being about you're wrong being offensive. <laughs> yes. Anyway, basically, if you tell somebody that, they, that their opinion is not correct, um, that's actually quite a frightening, terrifying, anger-instilling thing to sort of throw at somebody. And yet the Bible does it regularly. I mean, in fact, saying to people you're wrong, um, exposing the lie, uh, showing them that they are afraid of the truth, got Jesus killed. 
I mean, in short, him talking the truth got him all the way to the cross. And we're called to speak that same truth in love. But it's not inconceivable that it'll get Christians uh, in the same position, you know, as we move on into this current age, which seems to be more and more anti-truth. Um, you can't say what is actually obvious that certain things don't work, that lifestyles are not going to actually help people, and yet at the same time, um, the truth is something that really has to be spoken. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf does star Imelda Staunton, and it arrived at theatres last Thursday, August 19. So if you'd like to check out more theatre at your theatre, you can also head over to flicks.com.au. It's got a full 2017 program over there. Now, a little before the break, I actually posed a true or false. We're talking about Stephen King and asking where this wealthiest of wealthy authors actually wrote his first book, his first novel, Carrie. Uh, Where was it? In a laundry room, in a janitor's desk or at a small town service station? Janitor's desk. Going to go with the janitor's desk? It could be any of those, but the truth is it was actually in his laundry room. Ah. And that's the thing. I mean, the, the man basically had to write. Uh, and his wife really respected that. I love that. His wife, Tabby, set up a makeshift desk in their laundry room, fitting it snugly between the washing machine and the dryer. <laughs> and each evening, while she changed diapers and cooked dinner, that's the time that King would lock himself in the laundry and write. And that's when he wrote his first novel, Carrie, which became the first of many great successes. Have you heard the one about James Bond, a Star Wars villain, and the million dollar baby walking into a bar? Well, that sounds like a joke, but new crime caper Logan Lucky is real. It's at cinemas and it's up next. Welcome back. We are up to the soundtrack segment of The Big Picture this week. Very soon, we're about to talk about this new film called Logan Lucky. Mark, that's from director Steven Soderbergh. He's an Oscar winner for the film Traffic. He's a many and varied director. He's behind everything from Aaron Brockovich to the Ocean's Eleven series. But, Mark, for my money, those were not the best movies that he made. Before I announce what the best movie is that Steven Soderbergh ever made, let's play a song from its soundtrack. Can one guy be? I kissed her and she kissed me. Like the fella once said, Ain't that a kick in the head? The room was completely black. I hugged her and she hugged back. Like the sailor said, Folk, ain't that a hole in the boat? My head keeps spinning. I go to sleep and keep grinning If this is just the beginning My life is gonna be Beautiful I've sunshine enough to spread It's just like the fella said Tell me quick Another kick in the head Said, ain't that a kick in the head? Like the sailor said, quote, ain't that a hole in a boat? My head keeps spinning. I go to sleep and keep grinning. If this is just the beginning. My life is gonna be beautiful, it's 
She's telling me we'll be wet She's picked out a king-sized bed I couldn't feel any better or I'd be sick Tell me quick Thanks, Dean Martin, for your Ain't That a Kick in the Head. And thank you very much for being on the soundtrack to the Steven Soderbergh film Out of Sight, which mm. is officially, Mark, in my books, the best film Steven Soderbergh ever made, a film starring George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez. It's an adults-only crime caper. It just, it's, it's much, here's, the, here's a short review on Logan Lucky that we're about to talk about. Out of sight is way better. But still, <laughs> but still, we are going to talk about Logan Lucky very soon. Um, it's got an excellent soundtrack, um, Out of Sight. And it's it's got um, music like Dean Martin and other older songs, but also it's got a score by a guy called David Holmes. But what I think it is is one of the best examples of weaving grabs from a movie into the score and original songs and creating that as a soundtrack album. Because when I listen to the soundtrack album, which I have a lot mm. of Out of Sight, it's like re-watching the movie in your headphones. Yeah, like me in The Secret Garden. It's... Uh, you had to ruin it for me. Yeah, that's a Secret Garden... <laughs> It's not a comparison to The Secret Garden, anyway. The Secret Garden's awesome. Okay, apart from like that aspect of it. Otherwise, Out of Sight and The Secret Garden have never been mentioned in the same sentence, and it never <laughs> will be. Go back to the bit where I love the, that soundtrack. Um, sadly, it does have some strong language on it at parts, and also it's got the, where the dialogue talks over the end of a song. That gets a little bit annoying, too. Like The Phantom in the Opera. Yeah, let's, the opera, let's go and talk about Logan Lucky. Rednecks and the Ocean's Eleven series. That's the notable combination going on in Logan Lucky, a new crime caper about working-class brothers trying to rob a NASCAR racetrack. Starring Daniel Craig, Channing Tatum and Adam Driver, Logan Lucky is a different but the same heist movie that gets you thinking about why we are so entertained by the smooth criminal. You were just fired. How many times have I listened to that Logan family curse thing yours? Well, your brother's missing an arm. <laughs> Show a little respect. That looks like it hurt. This kind of stuff don't happen to normal folks. Daddy! I have full custody. I'm getting a lawyer. With what money? I'm sorry, you have some sort of robbery to-do list. Charlotte Motor Speedway. It's the biggest race of the year. I know how they move the money. All right, Mark, this does star James Bond. That's Daniel Craig's play, James Bond. Um, a Star Wars villain, um, Kylo Ren in The Force Awakens. The actor who played him is Adam Driver. He is in Logan Lucky. And the Million Dollar Baby herself, Oscar winner Hilary Swank, turns up late in the piece in Logan Lucky as an FBI agent who is on the heels of the Logan brothers, Adam Driver and Channing Tatum. And as you just mentioned, this is this crime caper. Pretty much the whole film is dedicated to being about the setup and then the execution of a really sophisticated robbery of a NASCAR racetrack. For my money, it was modestly enjoyable, Mark. It's one of those (laughs) movies that I wouldn't say you should rush out to see, but didn't hate it, and it was funny at points and, you know, kind of goes along a ride at other points, but not that kind of movie that you're like, oh, my goodness, this is Out of Sight Part 2. Like The it, Dark Tower, which we'll be talking about later in the show. That's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So I think modestly, modestly enjoyable kind of sums up Logan Lucky, this crime caper. 
Absolutely. Well, look, it sounds like a great cast, cool vibe, and there's plenty to like about it, I guess. That's what it does sound like, right? Like, it sounds like there's so much to like about Logan Lucky, and, and, and there is. Don't don't mishear me. Like, there, there, there is. Go back to the bit about the great cast. Go back to the bit, as you just said, about the cool vibe. Um, it's hard to tell in Logan Lucky whether it's celebrating or mocking these working-class anti-heroes. It's almost like... Is it mocking rednecks, you think? Well, but then maybe not. Some of my best favourite family members. Well, then you, <laughs> then you and your family members might want to go along and see Logan Lucky because it, it's almost like it's a movie that's been designed to demonstrate to people that if you thought uh, hillbillies weren't that smart, hey, look at the sophisticated robbery that they can pull off. It's very similar to Ocean's Eleven. It's like Hillbillies Eleven. It's like, <laughs> it's like this really remarkable, like the detail in the crime is quite, quite impressive. Really, what what's going on up on screen? So yeah, is it actually commending these people for the what they put their mind to, or is it having a go? And the, particularly the character of Adam Driver, who wor- who works in a bar, um, he he lost his hand as a serviceman uh, and a, a U.S. Army serviceman, uh, but the the way his um, Southern American drawl is so slow and so kind of meticulous. Again, it's hard to tell whether the mocking or the celebration is happening. So there's plenty to like up on screen, but then go back to also with a bit where it's just another heist movie and director Steven Soderbergh's made a lot of those. Yeah, it does sound familiar, I guess, and that's the sort of thing. The only twist seems to be the sorts of characters you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think that is the the main twist. And also the fact that you get James Bond with this um, bleach blonde hairdo. He's he's a safe cracker who gets busted out of prison to help Actually, the producer told me that he's almost unrecognisable and she couldn't even she couldn't even pick Daniel Craig. He looks voice. like a member of that eighties band Bros. <laughs> that's who that I had a distinct flashback to the eighties and Bros and then Daniel Craig being part of that band. So yes, Mark, the, the points of difference I think really is the redneck team of thieves. But then we are looking at a very familiar heist movie. So I was thinking about all kinds of things like the other the other heist movies Steven Soderbergh's made, particularly the Ocean's Eleven films. But the history of heist movies, you think about everything from Italian Job to Inception or The Sting to Reservoir Dogs, Now You See Me, those recent magic movies. There are loads of heist movies across movie history. And I think the reason there are is because a lot of audience members, including myself, really like them. And one of the things we really like about them is that these films usually, and Logan Lucky isn't um, isn't moving away from this, is kind of showing crime and criminals as cool. They're pretty likable. They get to do all this amazing stuff. They're usually smarter than everybody else. And you often tend to forget, and Logan Lucky is like this as well, you often tend to forget that they're actually up to no good mm. <laughs> what they're doing on screen. Uh, and, and often, and this again is no exception in Logan Lucky, there are some reasons given here about why they're doing what they're doing. So you get all that sort of swelling around, but it's still the same familiar packaging I found, Mark, in the, in the heist movie. And I then, in the seat, was just thinking about, oh, hang on, like, I'm, I'm sort of scrutinising their reasoning and their justification. And the Channing Tatum character's got a daughter he's got to look after and, you know, blah, 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 blah. But I'm still sitting back in the cinema thinking, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. You guys are actually robbing stuff. You're stealing. <laughs> like, and that's not right. That's not good, Mark. Well, hang on a minute. You're actually sounding a bit preachy here. I mean, it's just, I mean, we are looking for the Christian angle, but if you want to get the sermon out... <laughs> yeah, that's right. I know. I know. As, as soon as it sounds like I'm trying to rip the fun out of it, and again, modestly enjoyable is what Logan Lucky is. I'm not taking that uh, that away from it. Um, it. It is fun. I'm not trying to deprive it of its fun, but 
as I think about Logan Lucky and other heist movies, I'll just speak personally then. I'm challenged as a, as a cinema goer about what I'm watching and, and what I'm taking in. Yeah. And I think often people can really fire up about violence or sex on screen and go, well, like, that's, you know, that's the thing that we should really react to. I'm reacting here to a heist movie and considering the moral framework that the Logan brothers up on screen are working from. And what they're suggesting is that you can basically do what you want provided you've got a good reason. Now, is that a good framework to be operating from? And Logan Lucky's not trying to teach me how to live my life. But if we complain about all these other types of movies and TV shows that go on about morality, and in particularly when they've come when around sex and violence, what about things like crime and robbery, for mm. example? So Logan Lucky suggests one thing. I, as a Christian, am pointed back more to the moral framework that Jesus holds up because I think that holds up way better when it comes to doing right for others, not just myself. Logan Lucky presents something different in a modestly enjoyable way. There ends the preachiness and, and, <laughs> and the rant. But heist movies definitely get me thinking about those kind of things. Logan Lucky stars Channing Tatum, Adam Driver, Daniel Craig, and Hilary Swank. Well, there's a cast and a half. And it's rated M for coarse language, so be careful there, and opens nationally at cinemas from Thursday, August 17. Someone else who revs up and cracks into Logan Lucky is Russ Matthews. He's a regular on The Big Picture. He's also a reviewer over at Insights, and Insights is a massive supporter of the show. Thanks very much, Insights. Go over to insights.uca.org.au. Check out Russ's reviews. And also, you can find over there at the moment a really cool proof profile of Laura Bennett, who reviewed To The Bone on our show last week. You can go and check out this great profile on Laura Bennett, Creativity and Faith, and how that combines in her life at insights.uca.org.au. Well, coming up, Stephen King's sci-fi thriller, The Dark Tower, and our top five alternate realities. Hey, welcome back to the show. It's great to have your company. Here at The Big Picture, we're always looking to think more deeply about film. So too does American film critic and podcaster Josh Larson, who just released a book called Movies Are Prayers, How Films Voice Our Deepest Longings, because he believes movies are, well, prayers. Sam caught up with Josh. That's where he's been. That's where Sam's been, talking to Josh. Yeah. Okay, and dug deep into the message of this intriguing book. So the basic idea is this is one way to look at films through the lens of the Christian faith. It's not the only way, and it's certainly not even the only way Christians could engage with movies, but I wanted to offer it as an avenue. And so the argument is that just as we pray, people of faith certainly offer prayers, um, I'm proposing that those who wouldn't claim to be people of faith also pray. They express yearnings, they express frustrations, lament, um, and send that out beyond themselves. And I think God hears those expressions. So similarly, when creative people get together and produce a film that expresses something like that, he's listening to that film too. And as such, it does function as a form of prayer. What caused you to see movies in this way as prayers to God? I think it started with um, the realization that I was watching a movie and feeling that they were working alongside me in the same way that some of my prayers did. And in some instances, they were doing this in place of my prayers. Maybe I couldn't find the words in a prayer. Uh, Maybe I was too frustrated to offer my thoughts to God. But when I saw a movie doing something similar, say, go back to the idea of a prayer of lament, a movie that really was mourning the state of our broken world. Um, It was almost doing it on my behalf. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder if I could find other instances of that, if it would also work for, say, prayers of confession or prayers of praise or prayers of obedience. 
Um, and when I was able to make those connections for a few others, I thought there might be something here worth exploring for a longer project. Josh, in your book, you reveal how so many films are prayers. One of them got my attention. It's this. To infinity and beyond. Can you explain to us how Toy Story is a prayer? Yeah, Toy Story I talk about as a prayer of confession, with the idea being that Christian confession is not just naming the things we've done wrong, but really it's an admission that we are not the perfect people we might like to think of ourselves as. Uh, We're broken, uh, we're away from relationship with God, and the first step of confession is recognizing that. And so, you know, the central narrative of the first Toy Story is this idea of Buzz Lightyear coming to the realization that he is, in fact, a toy. He's not this uh, perfect space ranger hero that he thought. And there's a wonderful scene in Toy Story that demonstrates this, where Buzz watches a toy commercial of himself and sees that, yes, in fact, there are these toys, these toy Buzz Lightyears. I'm just one of them. And there's a wonderful image here, too, where the reflection of the toy buzz in the television commercial is seen on the glass space helmet he wears. And you have these two faces looking at each other, the two buzzes, the real buzz uh, and the false buzz. And I thought that the movie captured this idea of confession of who we really are and what we really need quite well. Josh, many of us go along to the movies to switch off and enjoy just an escape. What tips do you have to help us think more deeply about what we watch? I think if you want to do that, and that's key, you know, this should be a desire you have. Certainly that escape a reason to go to a movies is a worthy one, and there are other things I do in my life that serve that function. So I'm not saying we can't do that, but if you have that desire to start engaging with them more deeply, the first thing you can do is just pay very close attention to what is going on on the screen in terms not only of the story, but things like the cinematography, the lighting, or the production design, um, or even the editing. These are the choices that filmmakers have made to offer up something for us to consider. And I think the deeper attention we pay to those things will gain a stronger relationship with the film itself, and then that fosters ideas within us. There's more things that we can respond to then, and we can bring our own experiences to if we're paying that deeper attention to the form of the art. Movies Are Prayers by Josh Larson is available now online. Thank you so much, Josh. An endless battle between good and evil may finally be coming to its long-awaited conclusion at a cinema near you. <laughs> the Dark Tower, starring Matthew McConaughey and Idris Elba. Oh, man, Idris Elba. That guy is super cool. Sorry, I'm getting distracted. Yeah. It's The it's Dark Tower, right? It's based on one of author Stephen King's most expansive, exciting book series of all time. But fans and critics are at each other's throats. Is this the most exciting film release of the year or an expensive, convoluted waste of time? We went along to the red carpet of this anticipated event to make up our own minds. He's like the devil, isn't he? No, he's worse. You can't stop what's coming. Death always wins. Your world might be gone, but mine isn't. If you let that tower fall, billions of people die. Do they have guns and bullets in your world? You're going to like Earth a lot. 
All right, Mark, we just walked out of the sitting premiere of The Dark Tower. You've read all the books? All of the books. Seven, in fact, with one little novella on the side. Okay, and just to put it simply, you're a big fan. So how did the first Dark Tower book meet your expectations? Um, look, uh, I don't know how to say this other than to say, ouch. Like, it's, it's, it's kind of sad. I may go home and, and just cry in a corner for a while. I might very well um, reread the books just to remind myself what it was all supposed to be about. I have not read any of the books. I, too, was underwhelmed. That's, that's probably a polite word for the Dark Tower. Bored. I would, I would use that word, bored, in the, for the last 90 minutes. If you're a fan, you'll be bitterly disappointed. And if you're not a fan, you'll be frankly confused. I'm in that frankly confused part. Because, yeah, off the back of seven books, when I first saw it, it was 90 minutes long. I'm like, oh, that's impressive that they've been able to condense it down so far. But I also, as I'm watching it, was thinking there must be more depth to this universe to at least like make it stretch out across seven books so i was left what was the word you used confused and kind of almost marveling at the fact that they've been able to pare back a universe so far that it was basically one-dimensional for a lot of this and it's really tragic because they had all of the elements that they needed i mean they had matthew mcconaughey playing the man in black a great choice for a villain and um, they had idris elba doing uh, the hero a fantastic realization of the gunslinger um and Tragically, what they've done is they've got just the hints of the real spiritual content that flowed right through Stephen King's original work. You see, at the center of the universe is a tower, and Roland Deschain is traveling across the multiverse, um, confronting problems, dealing with his own angst, but somehow working things through, assembling a band so that he can go to the tower, which is holding the universe up but is somehow shaky, so that he can climb the tower, so that he can find out who is residing at the top and ask his questions of the person who is in charge of it all. It's this great spiritual journey. Did you get any idea that there was anyone in the tower in this? I was just about to point out that nothing you just said then is really a spoiler because none of that is contained within this film and I got no sense at all that anyone's even in the dark tower of the title of this movie. There's someone in the tower and they're trying to get to the tower to see the person? Really? Yeah, well, that was the whole idea. So spiritually speaking, you had a real quest, which is very much like if you could sit down with God and ask him, what is it all about and why are we suffering and why does evil exist? These are the questions of the series. Uh, and you had one person who was going to stand there and ask those questions for you or stand between you and the Armageddon to come. It's such a Christ-like picture. They just paired it back to nothing. It, it, it turned out to be a gunfight in New York. Not much at all. So have they, the makers behind this and Ron Howard leading the charge as producer, have they just dumbed this down for audiences? Well, I feel like they've tried to keep it alive by basically selling it as Stephen King's sort of sequel to his series. You know how like iRobot is not is based on Isaac Asimov's famous novel, but is not actually a story within that novel. It's kind of like what happened next. Are you talking about the Will Smith movie version of iRobot? That's right. So the Will Smith version almost tells a story as to what would have happened next. Likewise, this is supposed to be set up as a, well, if this cycle of battle, good versus evil, goes on for eternity, then this is a version of what might have happened next Uh, but if this is what happened next it was like five minutes uh, in the shade while the real conflict was going on you don't have any sense of of the great god over it all who's somehow guiding everything you don't have any sense of real uh, of evil evil is just you know shooting people and being nasty it pales in comparison to what we realize is the fundamental problems with the world you know i i think that this will go down in history as one of the great opportunities for a remake in 10 years' time. But I hesitate to ask you, Mark, what are you going to do next? How are you going to recover? I'm going to go home, 
I'm going to hug my children. I'm going to pick up a copy of Stephen King's original novel. I'm going to start reading it and remembering what it was really all about. Well, thanks, Mark and Ben, for that fantastic red carpet report about <laughs> The Dark Tower, which is rated M for science fiction themes and violence. It does start the super cool Idris Elba, super cool Matthew McConaughey, and... Tom Taylor, he's, he's kind of cool. Cool and by it, association. Cool by association. It did open at cinemas last Thursday. Well, coming up, we find out what the Bible has to say about there being other worlds out there and my top five alternate realities for your viewing pleasure. Welcome back. The Dark Tower plonks audiences in other dimensions. We were just talking about it before the break. It transports us from the same old, same old of our everyday existence and into the parallel universe of Midworld. All this attention upon the Dark Tower's different worlds prompted us to ask Bible Society CEO and social commentator Greg Clark, who's a regular on our show, we asked, we prompted us to ask him an important question. What does God have to say through the Bible about other worlds? I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Every time I open a wardrobe, a small part of me expects to see inside some fur coats which I could push aside and there would see a lamppost and snow and Mr. Tumnus the Fawn in the land of Narnia. I loved the Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe as an imaginative boy and the fascination hasn't really stopped. The idea that another world was just a door opening away was very appealing, especially when I wasn't feeling too happy about the world around me. After all, it's pretty hard to be satisfied with this world, its injustices and unfairnesses, its cruelty and its loss. We yearn for somewhere more permanent and peaceful, but also more fulfilling and more exciting. Somewhere that all our dreams really would come true. But that's fiction. That's imagination. Our imaginations are certainly attracted to the idea. But are human beings really justified in thinking that other worlds exist? I think we are. I think it's a reasonable way to make sense of this world. This world itself suggests that there is something beyond. Take, for instance, our longing for justice. It's something very difficult to satisfy in this world. Sometimes evil gets punished, but often it doesn't. Sometimes the crook gets caught, but so often he escapes with a smile on his face. Well, the poet Les Murray got this right when he wrote in his poem called Suspended Vessels, Here is too narrow and brief. Equality and justice to be real require the timeless. It argues afterlife even to name them. Or you might think about our feeling that history is headed somewhere. For that to make sense, for the events of this life to really have some enduring meaning, there needs to be something towards which we are heading. For Christians, that world is known as the kingdom of God, when eventually it is revealed that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all things and the world of heaven and the world of earth come together. If there's no future kingdom, there's no enduring, meaningful story here and now. It's just one day after another and eventually everything will fade away. But the key piece of evidence for another world is the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Easter is our entry point to a place where death is not the end and where pain and sorrow and injustice might not reign supreme. Jesus has been there and in fact he himself is the doorway there for us. Jesus' resurrection is our wardrobe door and the world beyond is what we're really waiting for. But there's a mistake here that Bible readers make and I really want to point this out. So much of our language about the other world makes it seem like a weird place full of winged creatures and glowing lights, an odd heaven that we hardly recognize. But the Bible teaches something different. 
It teaches in several places that the other world is more like a city that comes down from heaven to earth and transforms this world into a place where the holy God can dwell and his peace and love and happiness descend upon us. There is another world, but the way it is described in the Bible may mean it is more like this world than we imagine. Greg Clark from the Bible Society. Also, the Bible Society is the home for eternitynews.com.au, a great supporter of our show. And in fact, if you'd like to see some of the stuff we've been doing for eternitynews.com.au, check out my further adventures in Stephen King's The Dark Tower Universe and how the acclaimed author makes good and evil really matter. Also, videos, lots of videos, positive stories from remote indigenous communities in the Northern Territory, or how a contra controversial orphanage has been radically transforming lives and many more worlds presented over at eternitynews.com.au Well, The Dark Tower led me to daydream about all those crazy universes the movies that let us live in, at least for two hours at a time. Strange, weird worlds that blow the mind, but are just familiar enough to make us think we could be there. So many to choose from, but I thought, Ben, why not my top five alternate realities? Five. Now, there are a whole bunch of alternate realities out there that are just basically all about life amongst the stars. Okay, so, you know, you've got Star Wars, you've got Star Trek, but I figured the one I really like the most, and this will sound a bit weird, is Starship Troopers. Well, you didn't go with Star Trek, Mark. You're like the the biggest Trekkie ever. I am, but it's not actually an alternate universe I really appreciate. Okay, okay. And the reason why with Star Trek, just an aside, is because I don't think humanity is going to produce nice, clean white surfaces and jumpsuits for the future. What I do like is Starship Troopers from 1997. It's basically a film about how alien life collides with Earth, you know, in forms of great big bugs coming down on asteroids, and how the human race has to go out and fight for its own survival. It's quite a comic book film, and not surprising, because it's based on a comic book. But what I love about it is because it it presents a political reality I can believe in, that we actually turn to fascism in the end as the only way of really surviving. Isn't Doogie Howser like some fascist leader in he that film? He is. He's a member of the secret police. <laughs> this is fantastic. And that's the kind of alternate reality that you're, <laughs> that, that you're drawn to? It is one of my favourite well, <laughs> alternate realities. But what I will say is I think it's one of the more realistic ideas. We don't turn into wonderful truth seekers. We turn into much harder-edged people when we try and save the world. Which brings me to number four. Now, horrific truths provide all sorts of alternate realities out there. I mean, it's stuff like um, Twilight. Okay, there's an alternate reality where we live in a world where vampires and and werewolves actually exist. Oh, you mean you mean that the horrific truths inspire the alternate reality to, to come to pass or for us to want to live there? That's right. The, these sort of dastardly, disturbing existence just underneath the surface of real life. Pan's Labyrinth is another oh, example. Yes, you know, yes. you can have that sort of like strange universe coexisting with our own. Personally, my favourite horrific truth reality is Interview with the Vampire from 1994. Oh, yeah. I love the... Um, I mean, for a start, it's got a great cast. I mean, if you can get Brad Pitt, Christian Slater and Tom Cruise in a film, you've got to go see it and see well what happens. Well done. Yeah. And it, it is the story of Louis, who's this sort of um, 18th century lord um, in Southern America who's uh, turned into a, a vampire uh, basically by his encounter with a fellow called Lestat, who's Tom Cruise, another vampire. And I love it because... Because even the gentle Louis finally realises that eternal life on this world 
just with ourselves is no life at all. Yeah, I mean, how about that, Louis? Yeah. There's <laughs> the idea that we can't actually handle eternity on our own terms, that eternal life like this would actually be really eternal death, and that's what he discovers. Three. So moving on to kids' alternate reality. <laughs> now for something entirely different. <laughs> yeah, so once you've got over the vampire's children, let's talk about the it's an alternate realities you really like. Like, I love alternate realities like Toy Story, okay? You know, they're where toys come al- alive when we're not in the room. There's That's not, not real? To- yeah, anyway, moving on. <laughs> or, or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That's okay. not re- yeah, okay, there we go. <laughs> You know, that idea where, like, there are um, kid-like animals living in the sewers and finding good and evil and that sort of stuff. But my favourite kids alternate reality is adventure time oh you branched out of movies jumped into tv shows i've jumped into tv i had to for the sake of this have you seen adventure time no i heard a lot about it but haven't my daughters are very young haven't quite got to the world of adventure time yet but i'm actually looking forward to it it's such a wonderful world to look forward to 2010 basically launched this series of of alternate worlds um you know from with finn uh the human and jake the stretchy dog uh who roam the land of ooh righting wrongs and battling evil and the interesting thing about it is why I like it is because uh, its creators set out deliberately to create an edge to the series. So every episode is kind of cool and funny, like a kid's cartoon, uh, but there are vampires in it. You know, but there are also, oh. yeah, there's always a dark edge underneath each of the episodes, a truth that the world actually has sharp corners to it. And that's what I love about this reality, too, that if you're going to actually have a world that we truly want and admire, it will require us to suffer in order to be saved. One. But my favourite one has to be from the Philosopher's Stone right through to the Deathly Hallows, oh, yeah? Harry Potter. Oh, I mean, come that was on. your favourite. Well, because... Uh, you've got this idea of, of a young boy rescued from this outrageous ne- neglect of his aunt and uncle um, whose great destiny is revealed to him that he's actually going off to Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. But he, but what it tells me all the way along in this storyline is just under the surface is a magical world um, that makes our real world look dreary by, by comparison. Okay, Um, and I want my boys to know that just because the muggles sniff at the idea of a king of all the universe or an all powerful father or even a heaven to come, just because muggles can't get that through their head doesn't mean that that doesn't exist. Uh, Just they don't know about it yet. And I'd like them to know about it, too. Of course, you'll know all about Hogwarts. Sorry. No. No? Blimey, Harry, didn't you ever wonder where your mum and dad learned it all? Long walk. You're a wizard, Harry. Thanks, Mark, for taking us deep into the other worlds of alternate realities. But we're back in this reality, and we will be back next week on the show. And what on earth will be coming up on it? Well, we're off to the wilds of South America to find the lost city of Z. We're also going to check out this new Channel 9 life-changing show this time next year. Plus, Tom Cruise is a drug dealer. What? Uh, well, actually, in the new movie, American Made. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cover that, yeah, clear that up, clear that up. In a new movie, in a new movie. Next week, we'll talk about that, and I'm still going to be Ben McKechn. I'll see you then. I'll still be Mark Hadley. The Big Picture is a Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. 